don't we thank him again? That was beautiful, wasn't it? Followed by the French fry guy. Can't believe Mike threw me under the bus like that. We're all adapting with COVID, right? You can't eat inside the restaurants. You're sitting in your car trying to juggle all your stuff, and you realize that your car came equipped with a French fryer hole when you use it. That's why I got for my Georgia Tech degree. Um, want to uh, begin by uh, saying just welcome you with us today, whether you're here in person or out in the car listening in on the radio or, or at home. just want to thank you for joining us today. Mike was right when he said that this is what we came here to do, isn't it? We came here to worship God together. And uh, it's one of the most unique things that we can do as believers. And, uh, you know, despite COVID, despite all the things going on in the world, I think one of the things we've realized is how important it is for us to gather together and worship God as the body of Christ, as the church, that um, we want to be together. You know, God gave us that need. God lives in community with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he's called us to live in community, and we're doing that right now. I um, do want to mention a couple of words about Ukraine. Heather and I uh, have been uh, living in Ukraine since 1999 and uh, ministering there. And uh, in 2014, uh, you probably remember Russia invaded Ukraine, and we've been at war since then. So now we're going on seven years. It started in March of 2014, so we've been at war with Russia for over seven years. And um, right now, at this moment, there are more Russian troops, soldiers, uh, tanks, equipment on the border of Ukraine than there has been in the last, last seven years. And the folks that we work with um, are worried. Uh, they're really worrying that this is the Russian invasion that we've been dreading, anticipating for the last seven years. Heather and I's home is about an hour and a half from the front line of the war. So I would just ask that you would pr uh, pray for our city, Berdyansk, pray for the believers there, pray that God's will would be done in Ukraine, and just, uh, just keep those folks uh, in your uh, prayers. I thought um, when I asked Craig, you know, if he had a, a text for me to use today, he said, nope, we're in between things. You can do whatever you want, which is something I kind of hate to hear. I like to be told uh, what to do because, you know, if it said anything I want, I've got the whole Bible sitting in front of me. You know, what should I choose? But I thought, you know, since it's the week after Easter, it would be, a, you know, I think it's, it's appropriate to stay with the Easter story and maybe just follow it out a little bit further. One of the differences in American and Ukrainian culture is how we celebrate holidays. In American culture, we get ready for holidays. We lead up to holidays. We have, you know, the season of Christmas. We have Advent. With Easter, we have Lent. That we, you know, we get excited. We get prepared in anticipation for celebrating these big holidays. Uh, Ukrainians don't do that. They celebrate Christmas and then it continues after. They celebrate Easter, and it continues after. So it's, it's one of those things we just noticed over the years. It's just kind of how, you know, different cultures approach things differently, uh, you know, celebrate holidays differently. Last week, when I say Jesus is risen, what do you all say? He is risen indeed. Uh, in Ukraine, uh, in the city where we live, we don't speak Ukrainian, we speak Russian, and we say, Christos Vaskres. Vaistinu Vaskres. I thought it'd be fun to teach y'all some Russian today. And so I'm gonna, when I say Christos Vaskres, everybody's already looking at each other. Don't worry, the lights are down. Um, but when I say Christos Vaskres, y'all are supposed to say 
Vaisanuvat Kriya. And so when you, when, I'm going to say it and you repeat it after me right away. You know, turn off your brain. You know, we're just parroting. We're mimicking. Don't think at all. As soon as I say it, you just repeat it right back at me, okay? Vaisanuvat Kriya. So I say, Christos vas kres, y'all say, vaistinu vas kres. And so now you're ready to go to Ukraine next Easter. Uh, so last week, uh, Craig looked at all four Gospels, the Easter account and all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today, um, I want to go back and read um, from the book of Matthew because it helps us to understand as the story goes forward. So let's start in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So to summarize, these women go to the tomb, and they see that the stone has been rolled away, and an angel is sitting on the stone, which, to me, that seems like a really boss move, doesn't it? The angel didn't just roll away the stone. He's standing beside it or doing something else. He's like, I rolled away the stone, and I'm sitting on it. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like you know, the angel asking for a what, what. You know, just, you know, very boss move. But they see the angel, they speak with the angel, who tells them to tell the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. And they immediately run to tell the disciples this news. And as they're running, they run into Jesus, and they see Jesus. They speak with Jesus, and Jesus gives them the exact same message. Go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. So that's what we heard last week. So now we're going to pick up the story in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. I know what some of y'all are thinking right now. You're thinking that the missionary tricked us. You know, we said it was about Easter, but it's really about the Great Commission. And you're wondering, is it possible for a missionary to preach without mentioning the Great Commission? And it is possible. Um, you're wondering if I'm legally obligated as a card-carrying missionary to preach on the Great Commission. And the answer to that is no, of course not. I don't have to preach on the Great Commission, but I will be heavily fined if I don't at least mention it. So uh, we're covered, and it fit in with our text today. It wasn't awkward or shoved in there. It was, it was natural. 
Now, before we dive into that text, I want to read one more passage. Luke actually records what happens in between verses 10 and verses 16. Um, in verse 10, the women run off to tell the disciples to deliver their message. And then in verse 16, we see the disciples going to Galilee just like they were told to do. But Luke records what happens in between. So let's look at Luke 24, verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. So that was the ladies coming back to tell them. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. When I read that last verse about Peter, it just, I mean, just reinforces his character to us, that Peter is a man of action. He hears the women's words, and what does he do? He runs to the tomb to see for himself. Uh, when the soldiers come for Jesus, what does Peter do? He draws his sword. And when Peter sees Jesus walking on water, he hops out of the boat to walk with Jesus. Peter is always ready for action. But when we focus on the ladies here, and I want to say, you know, when we read this, it says women. It's not woman. It's not singular. It's plural. Three are named, and then it says plus others. So if it's plus others, there's at least five ladies we're dealing with, right? Five women who come to the disciples, come to the, the gathered believers, and say that we saw and spoke with an angel. We saw and spoke with Jesus, and he says, go to Galilee. There you will see him but they're not believed. The disciples were so quick to doubt and dismiss their words as nonsense. And just what exactly are they calling nonsense? Matthew 28, 6, these are the words of the angel. The angel says, he is not here. He is risen just as he said. And so when did Jesus tell them that this was going to happen? That's what the angel's implying, right? That Jesus told them this is what's going to happen. Matthew 16, uh, verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So on numerous occasions, over a period of time, Jesus told his disciples over and over again how it was all going to play out. If we want to put this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe vernacular, Jesus shared his endgame with them over and over again. That he would suffer, he would die, and resurrect on the third day. Now, a trusted group of women say they've seen Jesus. He has risen, just as he told you, in multiple conversations, and the disciples respond with doubt, skepticism, and just disregard it as nonsense. So to me, that begs a question. How did we get from Matthew 28, 10, when the ladies go to tell the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee, to verse 16, where we see the disciples doing just that, doing what they were told to do, to go to Galilee. Galilee. How did that happen when we know the in-between? The disciples' response to the women was nonsense. 
called evil. Hogwash. Rubbish. And my personal favorite, hogatai. Because any of the disciples were British, they know what says hogatai. So why did they go? Y'all see my thumb? I don't know if you know this or not. You may not have ever been up here before, but we have an ejector button on the pulpit. I'm pushing the ejector button. I'm not going to go too far away because I still have to stay within the mic range. But I'm stepping to the side for a moment because what I'm about to say is conjecture. It's my opinion. It's my idea. Uh, but this is me trying to figure out how do the disciples go when they told when 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 they told the women, "Oh, that's nonsense. What you're saying is nonsense." Why did they go? I think the answer is found back in Luke 24:10 again. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women that got those disciples out of bed, packed them a sack lunch, complete with a Capri Sun and a Hostess cupcake, and sent them on their way. Now that's conjecture. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened. But when I was reading this and I was thinking about it, it reminded me of another story. Um, do you remember the story of Jesus uh, at the beginning of his ministry? And really, actually, before his ministry starts, Jesus goes to a wedding with some of his disciples, and his mother is at the wedding as well. And at some point during the wedding, they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother Mary finds out about this. She's close enough to the wedding party, you know, that, that she finds out that they've run out of wine. This is going to be a huge catastrophe. The whole day is going to be ruined. You know, the bride and groom are going to go home crying. They're going to be the laughing stock of the whole village. And what does Mary do? She goes to Jesus and tells him they've run out of wine. And how does Jesus respond? You remember the first word he says to his mom? Anybody? Woman? What does this have to do with me? It's not my time yet. And, and when we read it in the English, it sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? You know, has any of y'all ever referred to your mom as woman? We don't talk that way in English, do we? And if you look in your Bible, it probably says dear woman because they're trying to soften it. But in the Greek, it says woman. And I can say, you know, from personal experience in Russian, that's a common way to talk to somebody. That I can, you know, if I see a woman, I want to get her attention, I can just say woman. And it's not offensive. In English, it sounds, you know, it's like, you know, you better change your tone when you talk to me. But, uh, uh, but that's not. And, and so in the Bible, they, you know, in our, in our English translation, they, they uh, soften it with dear woman. But, there, you know, there's no tone when Jesus says woman. That's just the way they talk. But he says, woman, why are you telling me this? And it's interesting. Does, does Mary continue that conversation with Jesus? No, she says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And he says, woman, why are you telling me this? And she just walks immediately to one of the servants and says, just do whatever he tells you to do. And I think this is one of the most human moments we find of Jesus' life in the Bible. That here is Jesus, the son of Mary, doing what his mom tells him to do. And what happens? Jesus turns water into wine. John says this is the first miraculous sign that, uh, that Jesus did. And because of that, his disciples put their faith in him. And so when I look at these godly women, I just remember that story. And I, I, I think these godly women just said, no, we're not taking no for an answer. We're not going to argue about it, but you're going to Galilee right now. So now I'm, I'm back in the pulpit, um, and uh, we're going to go back. Uh, the disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And he is there to greet them, just as he told them. 
And so verse 17 says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Have you ever received uh, a message on Facebook or another uh, social media app where it says happy birthday or happy anniversary or congratulations on your new job? And when the words pop on your screen in the background, there's either confetti or fireworks going off or balloons going up. You know what I'm talking about? Just the effects that will go on. You know, you type in congratulations and all of a sudden Facebook throws a bunch of effects towards it, you know, and just explosions happen in the background. Um, when I read verse 17, those last three words, but some doubted, that happens in my head. But it's not balloons, it's not fireworks, it's not confetti. It's like my head explodes. I read the word, you know, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And my head just goes, Pow. what are you talking about? Are you kidding me? How? He's standing right there, but some doubted. One commentary I read says this, that simple phrase, but some doubted, is one of the countless testimonies to the integrity of scripture. The transparent honesty of a statement like this shows that Matthew was not attempting to exclude or cover up facts that might lessen the perfection of such a glorious moment. So first they doubted the women's testimony as nonsense, and now standing face to face with Jesus, they still have doubts. And I want to tell you that the doubting doesn't in there. Acts 12, uh, also written by Luke, uh, tells the story of Peter's miraculous escape from prison. Uh, King Herod had arrested James, the apostle James, put him on trial, convicted him, and had him executed. And when he does that, the crowds go wild. His popularity shoots up, and he looks around, and he's like, well, that worked, you know, maybe I could do that again. So he looks around, they arrest Peter, put him in prison, and Peter is sitting in prison awaiting trial. And actually the night before his trial is to begin, he's in prison and the church, the gathered believers, are all gathered together in one house praying for Peter. Praying that God would do something, that God would intercede, that God would help. And God hears their prayers, and he sends an angel who walks right into the prison and finds Peter, who is chained and shackled to two guards, and, tell, you know, and, and leads Peter out of the prison. The chains, the shackles fall off. Peter walks out of the prison. Peter actually thinks he's dreaming until the moment where the angel leaves him, and he's just standing in the city by himself. And so where does Peter go? He goes directly to the house where he knows folks are praying for him. Goes to the house, the door's locked, he knocks on the door. A servant girl named Rhoda runs to the door, recognizes Peter's voice, and is so excited that she forgets to open up the door. She leaves Peter standing on the street, runs back into the room of folks praying for Peter, and says, Peter is at the door. How do you think they respond? You're out of your mind. I don't know why Thomas alone gets the bad rap and the moniker Doubting Thomas. He certainly doesn't seem to have a monopoly on doubt among the disciples and followers of Jesus. In fact, if we're honest, we all struggle with doubt. 
from time to time, don't we? Do you ever catch yourself in the middle of prayer doubting? What's God going to do? This is cancer we're talking about. How's God going to help? This person is never going to change. I mean, really, what can God do? I keep falling into the same sins over and over again. You know what a DUI is, driving under the influence? Yes. <laughs> In other states, uh, it's got a different term, DWI, driving while intoxicated or driving while impaired. And, you know, obviously a policeman can pull you over for that, correct? Have you ever felt convicted in the middle of a prayer that the Holy Spirit, in that moment while you're praying, that the Holy Spirit is pulling you over what I would call a PWD, praying while doubting? That you're in the middle of prayer and it's like, I mean, and the Holy Spirit's like, you don't even believe God can do anything. I know I have. I'm praying for someone or something when I don't believe that God will or can act in the situation. But Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So when I say God can't fix that situation, it's too complicated, too messy, too sticky, too big, too small, whatever. When I say that, I'm leaning on my own understanding when I ought to be trusting in God with all my heart. When I say God can't fix that person, that they're too sorry, too far gone, too sinful, too unworthy, and sometimes by that person I'm talking about myself, I'm leaning on my own understanding. Instead, I ought to be trusting in God with all my heart. So let's go back to verse 17, but some doubted. How did Jesus respond? To put this in contemporary terms, this was Jesus' mic drop moment, wasn't it? This was the big reveal, the ta-da. You know, it's, it's, it's a booyah moment. That th at this moment, you know, it should be the disciples and Jesus celebrating. There should be chest bumps. There should be exploding fists. You know, just going all around, but instead some doubted. How did he respond? Verse 18 says, then Jesus came to them. To me, that's so subtle, but so powerful. Then Jesus came to them. Jesus crossed the divide. Jesus closed the gap. Jesus drew near. Even when we doubt, even when we're smack dab in the middle of our doubt, our God pursues us. The Bible tells us that once a man uh, brought his son to Jesus, the son was possessed by a spirit that, that made him mute, unable to speak, and would put him in convulsions, throw him to the ground, and uh, the son was, being, was hurting himself, his, his health was deteriorating, and so the man brought his son to Jesus and he said to Jesus Jesus if you can do anything please help us Jesus replied if you can if 
everything is possible for him who believes. And then the man responded, I believe. Help my unbelief. The man brought his son to Jesus, even though he had doubts. I believe. Help my unbelief. The disciples went to Galilee, even though they had some doubts. We pray, even though we sometimes doubt. And one of the best, yes, simplest prayers we can pray is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're here today and you have not given your life to Jesus, we want to offer you that op opportunity. You can do that right now. There is no better day than today. You have that opportunity. And I want to say to you, you're here. You're here even though you might have some doubts. Ask God to come into your life. All you have to say is, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And so right now we're going to go into a, a communion invitation hymn. And so if you'd like to come forward, James will be standing right here to greet you. If you need to pray, please come forward. You're welcome to do that.